This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are on the tail end of Season 7. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen About Culture and Faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. And I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf, Executive Editor at National Catholic Reporter. Dan and Heidi, welcome. Hello. Good to be back. (laughs) Hey, David. Hi, Heidi. Good to be with you. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio or an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the recent meeting of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. We're going to be talking about the 40th anniversary of the El Salvadoran martyrs, and we're going to be talking about Advent. But before we get to all of that, let's check in. How have you all been doing? Well, David and and Dan, it's great to see you. We're recording here the day before Thanksgiving, a very dreary day in Chicago, But I'm here to say I'm grateful for the slowdown in some of the breaking news that we've had in the last, what, month, month and a half. So everybody at NCR is hoping to take a half day today and move into the holiday. We're not planning to get together with any family for Thanksgiving. We're socially distancing and quarantining. What about you guys? Yeah, kind of a similar thing here. Longtime listeners will know from our annual episode near Thanksgiving that talked about this before that we celebrate Thanksgiving as a local friar community. And one of the great gifts and blessings that we've had over the years is not just the six of us friars, but we also invite some folks to to come and join us. And so that's included our friends who are Dominican sisters who live nearby. So a couple of religious sisters. Oftentimes we'll have a couple lay students from Catholic Theological Union who might be studying, but are from other parts of the country or internationally that don't have a place to go. And other friends that we've invited to. This year, obviously, we're not doing any of that. So sadly, I mean, it, it kind of breaks my heart because I know that there are a lot of folks who are perhaps by themselves. And this is this is really a difficult time for them, especially. But I am grateful for the five brothers I live with that we at least, it'll be sort of a, a an intimate and low-key but joyful Thanksgiving celebration. No traveling for me home for the holidays. I had difficult conversation with, with my parents and my family about this. It's an ongoing conversation with some of my siblings because they live a bit closer to my parents. But, you know, as we all know, this is very unpredictable at this moment. And I keep saying, we just got to hang on a few more months, you know, as hard as it is. So, David, how about you? What's going on in Hyde Park? Well, so as I've mentioned before, we double bubble with my wife's parents. My wife's parents about 18 months ago moved to Hyde Park here in our neighborhood to be closer to us. And so we have been very intentional our family unit, my wife and our kids, we don't interact with other folks and my wife's parents don't interact with other folks. And that allows us 
the relative freedom to go and be together at times like this. And so we are going to make the trip across Hyde Park, which is about six blocks, and we're going to have Thanksgiving over at their house. And that's going to be mainly an event for my wife and kids. Because of the nature of the work that I do, I'm not just teaching, and I would have time off from teaching, but I also am a freelancer, and so I've got client work going on <laughs> through through the holiday weekend. Several shows are on deadline, and so I'll be working on that. But also, and this is thankful news, several book projects are moving forward in various ways. So I've got some book proposals that are going in. I have one book proposal that's under review. One of my editors has just gotten back to me about a timeline for a revision. And then I'm also finally, I think, in the position to prepare and put in the book proposal for the big project that I've been working on and researching for the last eight or nine years, which is Walter Brueggemann's biography. And so he's an Old Testament theologian, for those that don't know, and he's got a very strong following in religion nerd circles, but his name doesn't necessarily ring out in the in the uh, Taylor Swift crowd, but it should. <laughs> but but that, that I'm happy to say, I think that we have figured out who the public is going to be, and the publisher seems very excited, and we're kind of moving towards a proposal, and then I hope a contract. But that—that's you know, information on that is yet to come. But for the most part, this has just been an exhausting semester, and I'm really glad that uh, the winter break is coming up, and there'll be a chance to, I hope, have some more downtime. Congratulations on those projects. Well, yeah, I mean, I talk a good game, right? But we, as John Lennon once said, it's very handy to actually finish a song. It's very handy, actually, to finish a book project. I tend to keep uh, collecting book contracts, and it's hard sometimes for me to actually bring them in for a landing. So I'm, I'm hoping that that gets to be something more of a case. But you both are, are you both going to be able to have some time off in the coming weeks, I hope? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's going to be different. I always look forward to the time off with my family in New York, particularly closer to Christmas and helping out in my home parish for the Christmas holiday. So it's going to be much like Thanksgiving this year. It's going to be much quieter. It's going to be, you know, with the local friars. And and I'm on the one hand, I'm kind of looking forward to that or I'm trying to. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I, I don't know that I am looking forward to it because I'm it's a mixed blessing, right? I'm sad about not being able to see my family in person and do the things I, I ordinarily do. But I'm trying to look on the bright side, which is is to emphasize exactly what you're saying, David, just kind of taking it easy, downtime. If I'm not traveling, that means then I don't have to pack. And if I'm not having to pack, then I don't have to stress out about getting to the airport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, trying to make the best of, as you know, you quoted uh, the great John Lennon, I'll quote the great Dave Matthews. I'm going to make the best of what's around my friends. Well, and Heidi, I would wish for you a slow news cycle, but looking at the world around us and particularly the U.S. government right now, I'm not sure that that wish is going to come true. It seems like there's going to be more madness in the pipeline between now and the end of the year. Is that your take as well? Oh, yeah, there'll definitely be news, but I think it's going to be a slightly slower pace than it was in the lead up to the election. So September, October, November have been pretty busy months, not just the election, but of course the McCarrick report in the church, and then what we're going to discuss next, the bishops meeting. So yeah, I'm looking forward to a little downtime, maybe uh, spending a little more time with my husband and kids. And like many people, we have uh, a number of home improvement projects that we're in the middle of. So once we finish uh, recording today, I'm going to paint my kitchen. We also have what I'm calling the great basement cleanup of 2020-2021 going on. So we're trying to make the most of it. We sometimes joke that our family motto is make do. So try to try to make do with what we have or what we've been given. So we're we're trying to do our best and grateful for now. At least our family, our immediate family has not been touched in any negative way too serious way by the coronavirus. Well, and I know that our listeners are making do in a lot of ways as well. And so just want to say again, in this period of Thanksgiving, we're very thankful for you. Know that you have been in our prayers and will continue to be. Some of you are going through a lot of hardships. Some of you, like us, have the ability to shelter with family or to be close to people that are dear to you. In whatever way you're going through extremity right now, just know that we are with you in solidarity and we're thinking about you. Let's take a break and we'll get back into the show. This is The Francis Effect and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan and Heidi Schlumpf. Earlier this month, on November 16th and 17th, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, or USCCB, met for their annual Fall Assembly. 
but it was a meeting like no other. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, the bishops met virtually rather than in Baltimore, as they usually would. Parts of the meeting were closed to the media and public, and two short afternoon sessions were open. The meeting came just six days after the Vatican release of the McCarrick Report, which detailed how former Washington Cardinal Theodore McCarrick rose to power in the church despite multiple warnings about his abuse of seminarians and later allegations that included minors. The bishops held a brief public conversation about the McCarrick Report, but took no action related to it. The bishops' meeting also came just nine days after most media called the U.S. presidential election for Joe Biden, days during which the current resident of the White House was still refusing to concede or even accept the results of the election, holding up the peaceful transition of power. It looked like the bishops weren't going to say much about that either, but in the closing minutes of the last day of the meeting, the conference's president, Los Angeles Archbishop Jose Gomez, surprised everyone, including some bishops, with a few words about the president-elect, who is, of course, only the second Catholic in our nation's history to be elected president. Gomez noted some areas of agreement between the president-elect and the bishops, immigration reform, refugees, the poor, initiatives against racism, the death penalty, and climate change. But Gomez singled out abortion as, quote, creating a difficult and complex situation, unquote, and said it, quote, creates confusion, unquote, among Catholics about what the church teaches on this issue. To that end, Gomez announced a working group to examine the issue. Heidi, you watched the public portions of the meeting, and NCR has reported on it. What are we to make of this very unusual bishops' meeting? Thanks, David. Yes, it was a very unusual meeting. And I have to say, uh, kudos to the workers at the USCCB who put it on because there were a few technical glitches. A couple times, you know, bishops didn't know if their mic was on or off, but it did actually you know, work, but it wasn't the same. So not only did the bishops not get the chance to speak with one another in the hallways at meals, the media who were there didn't have a chance to speak with one another or with the bishops. And so it was very unusual. It was more of a presentation than having too much of a conversation feel. And especially it was much shorter and also the lack of multiple press conferences where the media could ask bishops questions. So they did have an opportunity for bishops to give interventions or to speak up, and they would, you know, it was kind of fun to see them in their offices and and do the room raider thing with various bishops. But it was a lot less conversational. That's why I think that little added-on comment at the end by the president, Jose Gomez, was really surprising. In fact, I was texting with my national correspondent, kind of wrapping up where are we going to go from here? And all of a sudden we were like, oh, wait a minute, news is happening here. And I should put that in a little context to just say that in 2016, when Trump was elected and the bishops held their meeting shortly afterwards, they also released a statement at that meeting saying that they were creating a similar working group that was going to look specifically at issues of immigration. So that working group basically pulled together a couple committees that would be involved because they were concerned, obviously, about the things that Trump had said while campaigning about immigrants. But this announcement at the end of this meeting was very different, and especially in tone. I went back and looked at that 2016 meeting. It had the title on it, We Are With You, to Trump. Okay, that was not the tone of this last comment by Gomez. While he did note these areas of agreement, it kind of devolved into this typical culture war emphasis on abortion, which, by the way, I don't think any Catholics are confused about church teaching on that. Well, and I wanted to actually ask this question to the both of you. It rings out when a bishop says that something is going to create confusion, and that's not simply a word. That actually has some technical meaning, in my understanding, when bishops use it. So help us understand what they're worried about in terms of this confusion. What's the fear of the bishops here? Well, it's a bit of a misnomer. You're right to say that there is a concern in terms of the formation of people's consciences, their understanding and reception of church teaching. And when you talk about confusion, you know that, that plays a role in all of this. But I don't think it's being used in a theologically adroit sense. I think the bishops are using this in a colloquial sense. 
And it itself is confusing to those of us uh, who do theology for a living. And those of us like Heidi, who are journalists who specialize in covering the Catholic Church, there is no confusion. It's a bit of a straw man argument in my eyes, the presumption of some of the bishops. And I emphasize some of the bishops. I think NCR's national correspondent, Chris White, did a great job in reporting with, I think it was four or five other bishops uh, around the United States who went on record saying that they were also shocked by Gomez's announcement. This was not something that was voted on by the body of the bishops, this committee, and the tone was deeply disturbing to them, as it is to many people, myself included, in part because confusion has been used in recent years, I would say, in an incorrect way, in a novel way by bishops in high visible positions in the USCCB, in this case by Gomez, for instance, and by members of the executive committee. And what they mean by confusion is that the census fidelium basically doesn't count. Instead of recognizing that the faithful are either publicly or implicitly dissenting as people of faith, which is a category of faithful adherence to church teaching. Dissent is a protected category in canon law. It's protected in the church's theology and ecclesiology. There's a difference between putting oneself outside of communion and having serious doubts about whether one can, as moral theologians would say, respond in the obsequium religiosum in Latin, this idea of the faithful assent to church teaching, what's required of the faithful for things that are non-dogmatic, things that are not taught with the charism of infallibility, is that we strive, we aspire to incorporate with an open mind and heart those elements of church teaching, particularly oftentimes moral teaching, that an individual Catholic or a family, for instance, finds difficult to appropriate into the fullness of their faith. That in and of itself is not rejecting church teaching. That is not putting oneself outside of communion. You do not have to refrain from going to receive the sacraments and so forth. I give this background because that's important to realize that when the bishops today are using, as, as Gomez did in the statement, confusion, what they're doing is they're looking at the fact that the, the, the Catholic faithful, by and large, is, you know, you look at the polling and it's the majority of Catholics support the legalization of abortion doesn't mean that because one supports, for instance, safe legal abortion, that 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 they support abortion, right? This that itself is confused in this case. But I make this point because I think it's a bit of a rhetorical twist that's used, sort of like the southern uh, cliche of "bless their hearts," where what's really meant by saying that the faithful are confused, the bishops are condescending to say that they don't get it, they're wrong. And we're going to make sure it's their kind of polite way of cribbing a criticism or a frustration. The last thing I'll say just for the moment is that what's really disturbing about this is that a lot of the issues that animate you know, this sort of rhetoric and disposition on the part of certain bishops in conference leadership is actually very sectarian. It's very politically motivated, as Heidi pointed out, that at the election of Donald J. Trump in 2016, the bishops would begin by saying, we are with you. And in this case, we have a Catholic president-elect, and the disposition is immediately adversarial based on a hot-button issue without regard for the whole consistent ethic of life. Well, and that, that's what I wanted to pick up on. So I, I want to take that idea that in 2016, the bishop said, we are with you, and then we have this statement by uh, Archbishop Gomez. Is that the only example of adversarial, or, or are we seeing a tone of adversity or a tone of resistance coming from the bishops more generally coming out of this meeting? Well, not so much from the meeting, because again, the rest of the meeting was taken up with some you know, rather pedestrian things. I mean, I was particularly shocked by how little time was spent on the McCarrick report, which, you know, coincidentally or not, was released by the Vatican after this long wait to be released just right before the bishop's meeting. So you would think that there might be some action or statement on that. And instead, while they did meet in executive committee and discuss it privately, the public discussion was brief and had a tone of like, yeah, this is sad, and now it's time to move on. And I was very surprised when Gomez, if nothing else, is very good at like keeping to the time schedule. He's like, oh, we finished the meeting even seven minutes early, he pointed out. And I thought, yeah, maybe we could have used those seven minutes to talk a little bit more about, you know, for example, the fact that many Catholics are 
horrified to learn about John Paul II's role in promoting McCarrick, despite warnings. So the the U.S. bishops did not take up NCR editorial's suggestion to suppress the cult of JP2 here in the United States. So I wouldn't say the whole rest of the meeting was adversarial, but of course the bishops have had this culture war mentality now for years. And I just think this would have been an opportunity to set that aside and to move forward with the second Catholic president in the history of our country. And given the list of things that we are in agreement with him and probably his future administration on to try to have some common ground and move forward and accomplish something. And that didn't happen. Yeah, I would say another thing I was really shocked by was, yeah, yeah, adversarial, not maybe odd extra, like, like how do you saying, like, you know, beyond the Biden sort of uh, rhetoric toward at the very end. But there was some internal tension, as we've seen in recent years, among the bishops themselves. And I was struck by what I thought was, at best, tone deaf, and at worst, which is probably more accurate, completely misguided, the defense of some bishops uh, in what I would call John Paul II apologetics, that there were people who were bending over backwards, bishops who were bending over backwards in line with a lot of this alt-right Catholic media to try to exonerate John Paul II by blaming, well, he wasn't advised correctly, this, that, and the other. The McCarrick Report from the Vatican, all 460 pages of it make quite clear that John Paul II overrode advice to the contrary. He overrode John O'Connor's intervention. He overrode the advice of the Congregation of Bishops and so forth. So John Paul II takes responsibility. He, he he acted singularly, exercising his authority as the pontiff. So I, it was really actually quite disturbing. I, I don't expect, to Heidi's point, I don't expect the bishops very quickly, especially some of these who are JP2 or Benedict XVI appointees, to be pulling down John Paul the Great from their Catholic high schools anytime soon. But for the record, you know, history is going to look back on these guys very, very, very poorly and rightly so. So that's one thing. I, I'll say the other thing, too, that I found very, very surprising, which was a shock to me. I did not know this. And it was a shock, it seems, to some of the bishops, including Bishop John Stowe, uh, a fellow Franciscan friar, which was in the presentation about the renewal or the extension of the ad hoc committee status for racial justice which is a three-year to three-year ad hoc committee, which in and of itself I think is problematic given the fact that racism is this country's original sin. This is something we need to, including within the church, need to address, and it's going to take beyond all of our lifetimes to do justice to this. That should be a permanent committee is my point. But that the committee isn't even funded by the USCCB itself, but has funding from external funders, including the Knights of Columbus. When I heard that, I nearly fell out of my seat. And almost immediately, Bishop Stowe raised an objection and he said, I don't think we should have something like this funded externally. If this is a priority of this body of bishops, then we should pay for it internally. Furthermore, you know, from a journalistic perspective, an ethics perspective, there, there, it's, it's ripe for conflicts of interest. You know, and I don't see the Knights of Columbus being exemplars of intersectionality and inclusivity in, re- in dealing with the history of indigenous genocide and chattel slavery and Jim Crow and, and all the sort of things that are going on throughout history in the United States context. So I, I'm still kind of flabbergasted. I was grateful that that came to the surface. And I was grateful, and as I tweeted out to Bishop Stowe, grateful that he immediately said, this is a problem. Is anyone else, you know, it was almost like a gaslighting thing. He's like, does anyone else see a problem with this? In my re- recollection, and Heidi, you can correct me, I think Archbishop Gomez says, oh, yes, okay, we'll look into that. You know, it was something that that they were going to look at internally. We'll see where that goes. And I'm sure the great journalists at NCR and elsewhere will hopefully stay on top of that. But Boy, was that shocking. One of the things that I would like to understand is, under typical conditions, what is a meeting like this intended to accomplish? Like, what is the goal of a bishop's meeting that happens every year in Baltimore under typical conditions? And how how did this—well, let me just start Let me just start there. What's the goal of this meeting under typical conditions? To raise my blood pressure? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, to have a good—to eat crab, crab cakes in Baltimore. <laughs> you know— I'm not a, a historian. I don't understand all the, the ins and out of it, to, except to know that the bishops do meet twice a year. You know, there's this annual meeting that's always held in Baltimore, which is the bigger 
uh, meeting where more business is conducted. And then they have the summer meeting in June that rotates where it's held. That generally is a shorter meeting. And like any organization and body of leaders, the idea of meeting in person, getting together has both formal and informal things that can be accomplished. So the formal stuff, you know, involves reports. So there was a report from, you know, the review board head and, you know, various committees uh, do meet and have reports. There's also sometimes action items. And I think if you go back and look at NCR's coverage of bishops meetings in the past years, especially our columnist, Michael Sean Winters, critiques of them, you know, he's opinion, giving his opinion, is just the things on the agenda too often are these internal, you know, minutiae that is not really addressing what's going on in our world. And if ever there was a year when it was crying out for our religious leaders to be addressing coronavirus, the polarization in, in the aftermath of the election, when, when the bishops were meeting, when we still didn't even have Trump acknowledging that he had lost, and of course, all the, the racial you know, violence and tension and reckoning that needs to happen. Now, to their credit, racism and coronavirus were on the agenda and they were discussed on the second day. But there was very little that was, you know, super prophetic coming out there. And the problem is, even though, you know, there were some good things said during those conversations, they're eclipsed by this announcement at the end that takes the antagonistic tone towards Biden. And they're eclipsed by the weak discussion of the McCarrick report. So on the one hand, I kind of feel for the bishops. They try to talk about important things, but unfortunately they lose their credibility by, you know, insisting on or pandering to those members in their group who want to continue to play this culture war game. Yeah. I mean, I have just three things to add. I mean, one is just additional background. You know, Heidi's totally right that, that the June meeting floats around to different parts of the country. And the reason that the fall meeting takes place in Baltimore is because Baltimore is the primal see of the United States. It's the first diocese in the United States. And so it has a historical and kind of symbolic significance for the U.S. church. And there is at least a re- we call it the standard meeting or something this or the annual meeting because you know for those who are are familiar with like boards of trustees of universities or of nonprofits or for profit corporations because of bylaws of incorporation you have to meet at least once annually you know and so that fulfills that purpose the June meeting you know is is more flexible. The second thing is I, I want to just go back to something you know that Heidi mentioned that my colleague you know fellow columnist at NCR Michael Sean Winter Winters what he talks about about the disconnection I agree Michael Sean and I don't always agree on everything which is what makes for great opinion colleagues but one thing I do agree with is the disconnect and and I think that was uh, uh, very very evident starkly put into relief this this past meeting given the circumstances in the world and these really dire realities and challenges before us as a church, representative, of course, by the McCarrick Report, um, but as a broader society, when we think about racism, the pandemic, the divisive election, growing, growing income inequality. It's absolutely startling. It's staggering, in fact. You know, these are things that deal with life at its core when it talks when we talk about human society. The fact that Fratelli Tutti came out a month before and that was barely mentioned. I mean, it's a scandal to think about that. And so here's my takeaway. I have I, I, I would describe, you know, it's interesting watching the USCCB by afternoon and the new episodes of season four of Netflix's The Crown by evening. The parallels were striking. One is a real monarchy that is worthy of being mocked and critiqued even by the British people themselves. And there are serious questions about whether this performance is worthwhile, especially to be supported by the government. And then you have the USCCB by day playing monarchical cosplay. You know, they're not necessarily wearing their finest regalia, but they are so self-important, self-referential, and, and solipsistic in their references. It, to me, is absolutely disgusting disgusting that a group of equals who are supposed to be in communion with one another as a college of bishops begin and end every one of their formal remarks and informal remarks with your eminences and excellencies, like they're standing in the court of you know Henry VIII. It is scandalous. And it seems like a stupid little thing, but symbolism matters. And the truth is, if these bishops wanted to be the pastoral ministers that they are entrusted to be by virtue of their office— then they should share the fraternitas, this idea of fraternity that comes by being ordained 
into this college of bishops, just like we, as I'm a, I'm an ordained priest, the presbyter in the college of presbyters or deacons and likewise, you know, they are equals in this sort of, only thing I can describe it is this, this neologism of monarchical cosplay. They're pretending like they're little monarchs or they're in some sort of court and they're so self-important. It's so disconnected from reality when people are suffering so tremendously, spiritually, physically, psychologically. You know, I, I wrote a column about this a few weeks back. Other bishops' conferences provide us with a model more in keeping with what the purpose of a bishops' conference is. And I use the example of our bishops in Australia who have put a lot of energy into addressing mental health concerns, especially in the age of pandemic. I could not imagine the USCCB coming together with the courage, the fortitude, or the common sense to do this. For heaven's sake, America's most pressing issue is racism, and they can't even manage to form a permanent committee on that or fund it themselves. It's disgraceful. End of rant. My third point. I think one of the things that I found shocking is also another lacuna that's that's large. And, and, you know, Heidi kind of pointed to this, certainly when we think about the McCarrick Report, and this comes into greater relief. A lot of the self-identified culture warrior, quote unquote, conservative bishops of the conference around the United States have for years now defended people like, you know, the disgraced former Nuncio Vigano and have blamed Pope Francis and have, you know, made very public challenges to him. And they've been just crying out for the release, including places like the EWTN and, and, and elsewhere, have been crying for the release of the McCarrick Report. It has been released. And one of the things that has become very clear is that Vigano is what many of us have already known, is complicit, <laughs> overtly complicit in this. And I've not seen the kind of fraternal correction that would be expected among a body like this. Now, maybe it's happening in executive session, but sources have not suggested that it has. So I'll just put it that way. That they're correcting people like John Strickland, the Bishop of Tyler, Texas, who is one of the most vocal critics of Pope Francis, who's been one of the most ardent supporters of Vigano, who's been in denial and, and perpetuating. His, his tweets have been flagged by Twitter for their inaccuracy when it comes to the U.S. presidential election. Where is the fraternal correction of these bishops holding one another accountable in the spirit of charity and in the spirit of their communion? Because the church is a communion of communions symbolized by the ordinary who holds the bishop, the you know, the episcopal office of that church, of that local diocese. So clearly there's a lot more for us to say about this. And as the impact of the Bishop's Conference becomes more apparent in the coming weeks, I'm sure that we'll come back to it. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. December 2nd marks the 40th anniversary of the martyrdom of the four churchwomen of El Salvador. Their names were Sister Dorothy Kazel, Sister Ida Ford, Sister Mara Clark, and Jean Donovan, a lay uh, missioner. And they were brutally raped and murdered while traveling back from the San Salvador airport. These American women, religious, and one lay missioner were killed for their solidarity with the poor and suffering Salvadoran citizens. Along with the assassination of St. Oscar Romero nine months before, the deaths of these four women religious in many ways marked the beginning of more than a decade of horror for the Central American nation. From 1980 to 1992, the brutal civil war in El Salvador took the lives of over 70,000 people. Many died at the hands of Salvadoran soldiers who received training at the U.S. Army School of the Americas, now known as Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. The U.S. was deeply involved in El Salvador's civil war, supporting the government with approximately $1 million of military aid per day throughout the conflict. The brutal killings galvanized religious communities internationally, and in particular focused attention on U.S. support for the Salvadoran military in a decade-long war that eventually left nearly 30 Catholic priests and religious dead. By the time the war ended in 1992, El Salvador was known as a country where religious martyrs died seeking social justice for the poor. David, this is a brutal event. Why is it so important to remember it and commemorate it? Well, it's the 40th anniversary. So that means that we have kind of 40 years of the knowledge, not only that this brutality happened, but knowledge that the U.S. government was complicit in it. And I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, and Columbus, Georgia is just north of Fort Benning. And Fort, Fort Benning was the home of the School of the Americas. And so 
the people that I went to school with and the people that I had as neighbors were some of those people were involved in these kind of atrocities and other atrocities. I, I think I've said before on this program, maybe I haven't, that another neighbor that I had when I was growing up in Columbus, Georgia, was Lieutenant William Calley, the butcher of Milai. So I, I have these people sort of in my immediate scope of influence. Like the, these were people who were living people who were influencing events around the world, and they were my neighbors <laughs> in many ways. And so this is one of the things that I, I think is important to remember 40 years on, is that this is not something distant that happened around the globe. This is not something remote from us. This is something that involves us intimately and in a neighborly sense. This this is the, the, the people that you are seeing at the grocery store who are being able to influence those soldiers and those guardsmen who then around the world are creating literal butchery. And so you can hear in my voice, I've got a strong feeling about this. I, I, I remember hearing about these events and at the time, I wasn't Catholic, but I was deeply moved by the fact that these and others were being killed and that the tax dollars of my parents and later my own tax dollars were being used as part of the coffers that were training these people. And I I don't see how, as a person with a religious conviction, as a person with a conscience, I can't speak out and others can't speak out about this and remember this and raise this up. And so I'm, I'm glad that we made this one of the segments because I think that it's important for our listeners also to be aware that this happened, even though it's, it's grisly to get the information about what happened, but also it's, it's important for them to become informed and to become active around this. David, I appreciated you mentioning the School of the Americas protests down at Fort Benning because I was a longtime attendee covering and even crossing the line down there once. So, uh, you know, I think that the church's witness there, led by the former Marinol priest, Roy Bourgeois, and also obviously the witness of these four women who bravely returned to that country, even though they knew they were putting their lives in danger. I can't tell you how many Catholics I speak to who say they remember when this happened and how formative it was for them in terms of waking up to and understanding what is called of, you know, what is demanded of some Catholics and as their Christian witness. So I say both this anniversary every year, and then it also follows the anniversary of Dorothy Day's death. So 40 years ago, um, just a couple days earlier on the November 29th, she died. These are the <clears throat> the reasons I stay Catholic. In our previous segment, we were talking about how we're not in, you know, inspired by our bishops as leaders, but I find all of these women incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I do too. I, I had the the opportunity back in 2004, I was down there at the SOA protest covering the event for Catholic News Service at the time, actually. Um, listeners may not know that before I became a friar, I was a photojournalist and yeah, working on assignment for Bob Roller and the team at CNS and photographed, among others, not just you know uh, Roy Bourgeois, the former Marino priest, but Martin Sheen was there and, and a number of other celebrities who, like, like Heidi, I would say, like myself, like so many of us, are deeply inspired by the witness of people who put their Catholic faith on the line and put their lives on the line for the sake of others. I think one thing, too, that's worth noting, not only the complicity of our own country in meddling with these sorts of you know, civil wars and coups and these sorts of things throughout the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. But I also think it's it's kind of a scandal from within the Catholic Church, too, particularly under the pontificate of John Paul II, and to, to a lesser extent under Benedict XVI. Again, historically, sociologically, there are reasons why these two men who grew up during World War II, who saw, as John Paul II did in his early priestly ministry, devastating consequences of communism and this kind of thing, they, they tended to be very, very skeptical or cautious around anything that looked to them like communism or Marxism or anything like that, including liberation theology, which is unfortunate. There, I would say somebody like John Paul II's lack of ability to discern these things has, you know, delayed 
the rightful naming of somebody like finally now Saint Oscar Romero, who by virtue of his martyrdom, he was martyred for the faith. He was shot in the heart while celebrating the Eucharist for heaven's sake. And and the same thing is true with with these uh, religious sisters and, and lay missioners. I mean, it's to me, it's it's a no brainer, and that it's taken so long, and that so few people within church leadership fully recognize their witness. I think is scandalous. So I would just add, you know, back in 2015, when Romero was finally declared a martyr, which then opened up the possibility for his beatification and canonization, I wrote a column for CNN Opinion back then, arguing that these four churchwomen should also be declared martyrs. The situation was quite similar. They weren't celebrating Mass, but they clearly put their lives on the line. And at the time, so this was five years ago, Neither of the religious orders, the Mary Knowles or the Ursulines, were pursuing that. And unfortunately, that's kind of how our saint-making process works, is you need some sort of organized grouping to you know, do the work that's involved in, in moving these things forward. And in the case of lay people, there isn't usually something. So I, I don't think it's being formally pursued right now, but I know for many people, they are informal saints and martyrs who inspire us to think about the costs of discipleship. And and I would just add that this, you know, I also was able to make a trip to El Salvador once in my life and see some of these places and learn about the incredible poverty and suffering of that country. And even to this day, and, 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 and getting back to what you said, David, about this being in our backyard. So many of the immigrants coming to our country today are coming because of the situations in their home countries. And, you know, El Salvador is one of those places where poverty, violence, it still affects people so much so that they have to leave their homelands to try to come someplace like the United States to at least survive. So this is very much something that U.S. Catholics should be thinking about. Yeah, I think it also raises, Heidi, I really appreciate that because there's a really important point about the role of formal canonization. I mean, the term itself means to be added to a list. (laughs) That's all it means. A canon is a list of names. And in this case, the canonization of uh, holy women and men are held up as universal models of sanctity for the church universal, for people all over the world for every time. But, you know, I, I think that I'm of two minds about this, and it's something, for instance, that I feel torn about even with a recent figure who died in the in the wake of ministry from my own province, Father Michael Judge. And, and Heidi, you're exactly right. Our province has not advanced the cause. That's how it begins. It needs to begin within the diocese or within the religious congregation or order. And it's there are reasons for that, and, and they're not of my doing. I'm not a provincial. I'm not a provincial council, so I, you know it's not my place. But but I think the significance of, for instance, Romero finally being named, uh, recognized, not being named, but recognized as being a martyr and being added to the canon of saints is an imprimatur, is an affirmation of his, what what many people knew, but others could dismiss or mitigate or, or talk down. And so by being added to the canon of saints, all of a sudden then, this is, it's, it's an authorization. And I think there's symbolism there that's really important, especially when we think about, you know, my character report, again, sheds some very harsh light and strong questions surface around, for instance, the rush to canonize somebody like John Paul II, or I think of the founder of Opus Dei, Jose Maria Escriba, or I think of my own brother friar, Unipero Serra. And th- these are folks who are added to the canon of saints very recently, very well in the case of Sarah, he's been dead for a couple centuries. That's another story. But, but controversially, and in the case of the first two men, very quickly, and yet it took decades—you know, almost forty years—for Romero. And and uh, and we'll see what happens. Not only with these four women in El Salvador, but also let's not forget the housekeepers and the Jesuit professors at the Central American University, who who are all murdered as well. So. I don't know. I don't know. Do you, David, do you have thoughts about, you know, the, the value or the, you know, kind of the cost benefit analysis of canonization and what that might mean? Do, what does it mean to you? Well, so as a layperson, who the church chooses to recognize is of great importance in the same way that the issues that the church chooses to publicly recognize is of great importance. What the church chooses to emphasize is of great importance. So as as we are recording this, we mentioned earlier Bishop Strickland, uh, the bishop from Texas, just now tweeting out another uh, tweet that says, you know, 
basically bless those that uphold the entirety of the deposit of faith. Well, the entirety of the deposit of faith includes things like not involving oneself in capital punishment, not involving oneself in murder and assassination, not involving oneself in political terror by extension, even though it doesn't explicitly say political terror. But what the bishop here means is abortion and not these other matters. And so what's really important to me about the kind of census fidelium, the sense of the people that, that, as Heidi was saying, that these are informal saints, I think is exactly right. The cult of the saints arose because people were moved by the lives and the witnesses of those that had gone before. And the cult of the saints in terms of the canonization of the official church was actually, by my understanding, something that came after that. And so in this case, it's the people leading the leaders of the church. I really like that part. And for me, as we have these sorts of sites and persons and places, Heidi, you mentioned going to El Salvador and actually getting a chance to walk in some of these places, that connection is important because Catholicism and the witness of Christ is a long-haul thing that, as we have seen in this year, oftentimes happens in the face of great opposition on the part of the principalities and the powers of the world. And so the witness of the martyrs and the chance to really connect in some way to their faith, I think, is very, very valuable for lay people. And I would just add that, you know, while we're remembering these four women, and also, as I mentioned, the anniversary of Dorothy Day's death, I'm going to note that these are women. And women are not always the people who are focused on, as you said, David, what the church leadership chooses to focus on. And I will, I think that's partly why they're so inspirational, especially, um, you know, some of them were younger, and these were just idealistic people who were trying to help the poor in a country where people were suffering. As we move into the liturgical year, too, and I know for for me personally and for many Catholics in the United States, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe is coming up. We have the Immaculate Conception. And so these anniversaries falling around this time of year just seems to me like a really good time to focus on women in our tradition. I think it's also important for us to think about and for listeners to think about the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, something that John Paul II liked to talk about a lot. And subsidiarity in in many ways is understood as people who are close to a problem having power over solving that problem. And so if we think about El Salvador and the poor of El Salvador, these were people who were trying to better their lives and trying to create systems of government that were not participating in the in the legacy of colonialism. And these women who were martyred were standing in solidarity with that effort of people trying to take some action in their own lives to make the common good better. And when we see things like the American government plowing millions of dollars into training people to thwart subsidiarity and to thwart the will of the people for the common good, Catholics should see this not just as a political issue and not just as a conservative or a liberal issue. They should see it as a Catholic issue. It's an issue where people having the basic rights of determination of their own common good at their local level is being thwarted by a multinational power conglomerate and by by forces that are operating in the shadows. The Catholic Church should resist any any forces operating in the shadows. So I think I think that's absolutely important um, when we think about the kind of global citizenry and this kind of impact across sovereign nation state borders and these kinds of things. But subsidiarity could be used kind of analogously as well for how saints are made. And I, I quite frankly, and this is something I've been vocally critical of, and I'm not alone. There are many other fellow theologians and, and church historians who point this out. That the current process, which has been sort of regularized and that people are familiar with, that involve you know the verification of a miracle to to become beatified and a second miracle as a sig- signal for intercessory prayer that you know leads to canonization, these sorts of things. That's all relatively new, and my fear about some of that thinking is that it leads to magical thinking. That it's a magical thinking about how you know these deceased uh, sisters and brothers of ours kind of zip and zap into the either directly into the world or have some kind of special access to God's ear or something like this in the next life. All of that is baloney. 
It has nothing to do with that. The canon of saints, as Sister Elizabeth Johnson has made clear in her excellent book, Friends of God and Prophets, and other historians and theologians have pointed out too, is about what is oftentimes called a cult of worship, a cult of, not worship in this case, but a cult of veneration, of admiration, where people recognize that first and foremost, these are exemplars of Christian holiness. They're, they provide us with models and inspiration and guidance, but it's more than that. They are intercessors, but not any more intercessory than your deceased grandparents or your beloved aunt or uncle or a, a friend or colleague who has died, because the canon of saints arises out of the communion of saints, which is this basic fundamental credo belief of us as Christians, that through baptism, we are united to one another, all of us living, scattered throughout the world today, as Lumen Gentium says, all those who have come before us and all of those yet to be born that will come after us. And so we can pray for one another because God is outside of kind of created time. And so back to the subsidiarity kind of analogy, for many, many centuries, it was the elevation of this cult of veneration, this cult of appreciation, by cult I mean this kind of kind of natural enthusiasm among a population for the recognition of their, their venerable life and their model of holiness. And I think we need to come back to that. Instead of this kind of top-down approach with a congregation for the, for the saints, which has this whole sort of rigmarole, which, by the way, involves lots and lots and lots of money. And that's part of the reason, back to Heidi's point earlier, that some of these congregations are not interested in forwarding the cause of uh, the formal cause of canonization. It costs a lot of money to do that. Just to add, at a time when we are looking critically at whether the canonization of John Paul II was rushed too much, I do see the value in holding up saints quickly at the at the time that people are still alive and excited about their this cult that you're talking about and nobody expects saints to be perfect but i think when we have so many examples like these four church women who are not being moved on the process then it really calls into question why we're so quick to to canonize popes well and there's much more to say about this but it's probably a good place for us to take a pause you're listening to the francis effect we'll be back in just a moment Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. So, evening came and morning followed, a new liturgical year. This past Sunday marked not only the beginning of the season of Advent for the Christian community, but along with that change of liturgical season comes the start of a new liturgical year. As with the calendar year 2020, this past liturgical year has been a roller coaster of challenges and firsts. Remote worship and debates about whether pandemic restrictions on in-person liturgies constituted violations of one's, quote, religious liberties, unquote, and a sense that each day and week was both an eternity and a blip on the screen. As we enter this season of Advent in a new liturgical year, many people are already excitedly decorating homes and hearths for Christmas, seeking the comfort and calm of a decorated tree or the scent of a pine wreath that the comfort might offer after months of stress, anxiety, fear, and suffering. Advent, a season known for waiting in joyful hope, seems all the more timely. But will Christians even mark this important season? Should they? Dan, how are you thinking about Advent this year? And what do you think Catholics should do about observing the season during such an extraordinary time? Such a good good question, because this is a question that seems to come up every year at this time of year. And, and I think about the well-meaning, but sometimes steamroller-like uh, liturgical police who are like, for the love of God, do not sing Christmas songs. Do not put up Christmas trees. Do not, you know, we, we are, we're in a discreet, separate liturgical season. It's a complete season unto itself. The four weeks of Advent marks the beginning, as, as you said, Heidi, of the new liturgical year. It isn't just the uh, pre-gaming for Christmas, as I think a lot of people commercially think about it. It is itself a unique and distinctive season that has a set of liturgical readings daily and on the weekends. It has a rhythm unto itself, and it's and it's one that is 
both eschatological and immediate. It's it's future oriented and it's present focused. It's about celebrating the coming of Christ into history about two thousand years ago and the second coming of Christ yet to come. Right, that has not yet arrived. And so there is a beauty, there is a power, there is a solemnity to this very important distinctive season that oftentimes gets compressed or it gets kind of overshadowed. It gets kind of shoved between Thanksgiving and Christmas as not so much a season for hopeful waiting or a season of already not yet, but a season of, I need to get all my Christmas shopping in on time. And for us academics, we have to get all of our grades in on time. And and so it gets lost. But I'm of two minds about this this year. I mean, just briefly, I'll say, I feel... I feel very differently. My liturgical police radar is is dead cold this season. I'm walking around Hyde Park in the early morning or late at night, and I'm seeing Christmas trees that have been up since well before Thanksgiving. I see people hanging Christmas lights and, and, and you know, electronic candles in their windows. And it actually brings me a sense of calm. I mean, there is something kind of soothing about that, which I, I think people are seeking. And so I don't have a problem with that. So I, I guess the way I've kind of made sense of that in my own mind, though it doesn't resolve the tension, is as court, sort of a pastoral exception. It's kind of like when a bishop in a diocese provides a dispensation on St. Patrick's Day when it falls on a Friday in Lent and it says that you can have your corned beef and cabbage. So, you know, maybe that's what we need right now is, is a little bit of a Advent uh, pastoral exception. David, yeah, what do you think about this? So I really like that. And I have to say, the idea that we would condemn anybody for doing anything that provides mental health or sanity or solace right now is just right out the window. I grew up as an atheist, and so Christmas to me, and Advent wasn't on the radar, Christmas was entirely secular in my household. It had nothing to do with this larger narrative. And then for 15 years, I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends. I was a Quaker, and Quakers actively resist the kind of liturgical holidays and liturgical calendar that uh, is so prominent in the church. And so this has been a relatively recent adoption for my own family here and for my own life here in terms of being a participant in these liturgical rites. And as I've gotten into them, I find I take them very seriously. And I take very seriously the notion of Advent not being Christmas and not bleeding over. And so it's interesting because, you know, I, I work with my kids and we work in our family to try and have the correct language. So blessed Advent is something that we'll say to one another as opposed to Merry Christmas. And then we'll start saying Merry Christmas on Christmas Day. But again, I want to I want to be careful when I say this. That's something that we're doing for our family. It's not an interruption of kind of what would be normally uh, a kind of Christmassy time. It's just what we do. But just like you said, Dan, and I imagine, Heidi, this is true for you as well. In this particular season, walking around and seeing that the Christmas lights were put up early and seeing that, you know, as we walk through Hyde Park, a lot of places are lit up in ways even sometimes even more so than they have been in years past. That's actually been a great comfort to me. And those kind of secular rhythms are actually something that's important during these dark times. Yeah, well, I, I like that language, too, of pastoral exception. I have to say I'm one of those liturgical curmudgeons who likes to make sure that Advent doesn't get lost. I wrote a whole book about the spiritual practice of waiting, and so a season of waiting really speaks to me. That said, my kids, it started even earlier this year. I mean, we saw Christmas trees up before Halloween, you know, and, and lights going up super early. And my first reaction was to, my inner curmudgeon was to react negatively. But like you, it's not just that I see it as comforting. I see it as people really reaching for traditions that have meaning for them. So I would say sometimes traditions need to change. And that, you know, over the course of my lifetime, I'm a, I'm a big believer in traditions. We bake the same cookies at Christmas that we baked my whole life. We do a lot of things that are traditions that we must do the same every year. But we also have to learn to be flexible. And if this year is the year, I think that it's uh, time to be flexible. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so I, I maybe I'll play devil's advocate here uh, and, and put on my hat, at least loosely, if not firmly, uh, my liturgical police hat, which is, I wonder if part of the reason that people are going, Heidi, like you rightly say, two sources of meaning making like these patterns and traditions that that surface uh, toward Christmas 
is because we still have the absence. There's a, there's a vacuum created by the lack of robust traditions in Advent. And this is something I know our listeners who are liturgical musicians, our, our listeners who are who are liturgists or sacramental theologians are probably screaming out loud, amen, brother, amen. I can just picture it now because this has been a long a long conversation. And I think it's an important one, not one that we need to solve now. So let me add that caveat. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I support this phrase that I've shared about pastoral exception. I think, you know, uh, difficult times require a different pace, a different perspective, but I wouldn't, you know, God willing, if, if we are moving toward normalcy by this point next year, I, I don't think I would encourage this. I think actually there might be a justifiable need for us not to be uncharitable or rude, but I think this is an opportunity for us to kind of reset the Advent tradition perspective. You know, there are little things. As kids, you know, I always loved getting a chocolate Advent calendar. One year as an adult, I had one of these little little whiskey things, you know, and over one year I also had a Lego Advent calendar. So those are those are fun little things to help mark the days. But, you know, as I've gotten older and certainly as a as a religious and as a theologian and as a priest, I've become very, very appreciative of the rhythm of the liturgy of the hours and of the readings for the day that are centered throughout the four-week cycle. It's a short, short, it's the shortest, well, not, it's actually not, Holy Week is the shortest liturgical season in our calendar, but it's 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 just a month, you know, and, and we could really work on that. I'll give one uh, one little hint of, of something that, that people can focus on. And it's something I know Dave and I have talked about in years past, which is my personal love for what's called the O Antiphons. And these are the last seven days before Christmas. The Liturgy of the Hour shifts in evening prayer before the Marian Canticle, before the Magnificat. And you have these ancient phrases from scripture, oftentimes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, that anyone who's ever sung O Come, O Come, Emmanuel will know that that song is based on the O Antiphons. And so the liturgical police in me still is resistant until you get to that period of the seven days before Christmas. No one should be singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There's plenty of other beautiful liturgical Advent music. But reflecting, praying, thinking about those seven days, especially like the last week of Advent, is is to me always very inspiring and challenging at times. So I want to pick up on that because for the last several months, we have a calendar that's magnetically attached to our refrigerator. And my wife has written at the top, it's a dry erase calendar, what even is a month 2020? Time has become very slippery. And so what I like about what you're saying about the liturgical calendar and the liturgical year and the and the daily office, the liturgy of the hours, those kinds of things, there are ways that people of faith and maybe even people who are not of faith can utilize or lean into to mark time and to make one moment and one kind of season differentiated from another in a time when everything is swimming together. And I'm not talking about a rigid adherence to this. I'm not talking about being slavish to this. I'm talking about finding ways in the midst of the swim of strangeness that we're in to bring some normalcy that works for you and to bring a kind of practice that will work for you and your family. I think that's very important. Yeah, David, I would agree. And I I can just add that our family does have a number of Advent traditions in addition to our own Advent wreath that we light before dinner every night. We also have the chocolate Advent calendar. Shout out to Aldi for the 99 cent chocolate Advent calendar, but which my kids very much appreciate. But we also have in our family a Jesse tree, which is kind of a felt banner kind of thing. There was one in the church I attended growing up where we uh, draw the reading every day and there's a little felt ornament that gets put on a tree and so it keeps us grounded in those scripture stories. But I think those traditions can happen in the context of some of the preparation that also has to happen for Christmas. And because we have a lot of time on our hands, as I mentioned earlier with some of our home projects, it just makes sense to prepare our home for Christmas with some of that time too. I will say that I think the theme of waiting in Advent is going to speak to people this year in a different way because our lives have been so much about putting things on hold and waiting. And so I think referring to this tradition, to this season that has something to say about people who waited in darkness for a great light, you know, I think of the vaccine as my great light that I'm waiting for right now um, and whether my kids will ever return to school in person. So I think it's really going to resonate this year. And I I'm looking forward to to marking that season in this strange time. 
Well, on on that hopeful note, Heidi, I think we're going to draw this conversation to a close. Thank you both so much for being with me today. It's great to see you, and I wish you the best for Thanksgiving and for the Advent season to come. Igualmente. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We now have close to seven seasons of episodes that you can go back and listen to on our website. Father Dan and Heidi will be joining me again in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. 